Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. And I often see perfume making like an abstract painting. And so it becomes very much like a work of art where the artist has to find the right balance between elements. It can be a very small element, but very bright, which will offset a huge surface of another element. It's all a matter of balance. I'm Lucas Werner, and every episode features a conversation. We're taking artists, writers, philosophers, designers, and musicians, and putting them in conversation with each other to explore what it means to make things today. This week's guest, the perfumer Frederick Mahl. Before he got into the family business, which his grandfather started, launching the very first scent for Christian Dior, Frederick, whose background is in art history, had ambitions to become an art dealer. And he has an unusual approach to the making of perfumes, a blend of science, psychology, marketing wizardry, and, most interesting to me, the history of visual art. He even thinks of perfumes as being figurative and abstract. So, um, Frederick, I thought it would be interesting to hear a little bit about your journey into the world of, of perfume and that sensory landscape, in part because I know that your educational background was at least half in art history. So there's a real background in the arts. And I'm curious how you found your way from there into doing what you're doing now. Perfume is something that I was born with and which gave me eventually a head start as my mother was in this part of this trade. She, she was working for a brand that her father had created called Christian Dior. And she was the development director when she was making products for them and developing products. Namely, something like Osso Vache, for instance, was she worked on when I was a child in the mid 60s because my mother was in this trade I mean she created this thing called this perfume called Baby Dior for my brother and I and kids of my age her friend's children I was sort of acquainted with perfume and wearing perfume unlike any other children it was part of my life I was interested in it but I thought that I had to find my own way professionally and that I had to do something different and I knew that I was interested by art, and I knew that I was interested by business. I sort of tried to put two and two together, and I, I decided to become an art dealer. That was my first ambition. So I studied art history. I studied a bit of economics. And then I wasn't so sure about art dealing. When I finished school, I started working in advertising. And perfume was always on the back of my mind, but it was, it was loaded. Uh, in the sense that it was my mother's trade, it was something that was almost, I suppose that she had chosen this job partly because it was a way to sort of carry on the conversation of her father that had passed away when she was very young, who I never knew, by the way. And and I didn't think 
Yeah, I was thinking of it, but I didn't formalize the fact that I was going to work in this business until the point where uh, a man who was running the best lab in the industry, which was called Ruhr, which was really this, like, was like a, the best Formula One team type of thing, called me and asked me to become his assistant, uh, to make a long story wow. short. So mm. I thought advertising, art history, uh, working with a lab, if ever I want to work in this industry, this is my chance. And I always saw this industry as a trade. And I never, I always thought, believed that it was, marketing was not going to get perfumery anywhere and that you had to know how to make things, how to design bottles and packagings, how to manufacture them, how to make a perfume, how to commercialize it. And so, you know, after, you know, years in advertising, studying economics and art history, I thought that adding that would, would sort of help me become quite proficient in this business. And, that, and I thought that it, it could lead me into it. And I, and I was right. The minute I walked into this lab, I had this very strange feeling of belonging. And this thing which I didn't allow myself to do all of a sudden became completely natural. And it felt that it was very much part of my destiny to use a big word. So that's how it, it all started. And the fact that I started so young and that I was drawn to perfume at such a young age gave me a huge head start. Now, what's very important, it, and it might make you smile, my mother is, uh, was always saying, oh, this is a sexy perfume. Oh, I like that. This is quite sexy. And you know, when you are five, six, 10 years old, you don't know that's what's a good perfume and a bad perfume, and you don't know what's sex and you don't know what's sexy. So it became right. to me that, like the million dollar question. And I've always, even before I knew what it meant, I was asking myself if such perfume was sexy or not. I didn't know about perfume. I didn't know about sex. So I, because I asked myself this question, I've been, and, and I've been sort of longing to get the answer. I had a head start into this and to sort of finding the answer, which is really the million dollar question in our industry. And, and, and you're saying that the million dollar question is ironically this question about what makes a scent sexy or what makes it attractive in that way. Yeah. And, and the truth is that there is not one way to make a sexy perfume because perfume is really the mirror of someone's soul. I mean, you wear a perfume that we all, people always might wear perfume that match their characters. It's the people that want to be sexy wear something that says, that shouts, this is why I smell off when I'm naked and so on and so forth. And there are so many ways to be attractive and therefore there are so many types of perfumes that make you sexy. There's, there's not only one recipe to have sex appeal, thank God. And you said earlier that you really thought of it as a trade. And I'm curious if you could go into that a little bit. What does it mean to learn that trade? What was it like to work with Ruhr and really develop expertise, even though it sounds like you probably had some native expertise from your childhood surrounded by perfume? Well, let's put it this way. I was like a fertile ground, but I didn't know anything. And the things that I knew... I didn't have the vocabulary to even describe them. And I believe that vocabulary really structures your thoughts. And mm -hmm. 
where your brain is a bit like a commode and you have to put things in the right drawers and in the right order. And actually, art history is a very good example of that. When someone doesn't know at all, you take that person to a museum and after five minutes, they'll be exhausted because they don't know when these things were made, where, how, the painters. They can't classify these images in their brain. And all of these sort of start crowding their brains. And after five paintings, they sort of forget the images and all that. Now, if you know, oh, this is an 18th century painting made in Venice, then, you know, I don't know, you say Canaletto, then you sort of put that in the Canaletto drawer and it's going to be next to all the others. So you sort of remember these paintings and you can go on watching things for a very long time because you classify things. So it's the same thing with sense. You need to learn a vocabulary to to understand sense. And when you smell, you you sort of, you learn the types of perfumes, the great families of perfumes. And because there are such things, there are certain forms. Can I ask you for an example of one or two of those forms? The, the, the business is was invented by someone that's created all these big families. You, you have this sort of abstract perfumery and you have things that I call sheep, for instance, that are made with oak moss and patchouli and all that. And these are Mitsuko, Miss Dior, this type of thing. You have what's called the flow, what we call the floraldehydics. So floraldehydics, it's what starts with Chanel number no. five, and then you have uh, Arpege, and in a much more modern version, you have Superstitious, which is the perfume that I made with with Albert Elbaz or Iris Poudre that Pierre Bourdon created. But then you also have perfumes that are copies of nature, that are figurative perfumes, that copy either one flower or several. So one flower, you have something like Diorissimo, for instance, that is Lily of the Valley. You have Carnal Flower, which is really sort of copying tuberose. And then this formula gets modified over and over, has different forms. But when you know how to smell, when you smell something, you, go, you can put it in the category. And then as the different ingredients, uh, it allows you to get closer and closer to how it's made and to understand how it functions. So mm. working for Rouen, I had good instincts. I knew what was sexy or not sexy, or I had a hunch for it. I had smelled all these perfumes that were on the market or even historical perfumes, because in those days they were a bit less. And I was going out a lot. And one of my things is that when a girl came by me, I knew I ended up knowing the market perfectly well. I knew exactly what she was wearing, but I didn't know how it was made. So I just, um, studying at Rouen allowed me to put things in order, understand that, I don't know, Coco by Chanel was influenced by opium from Saint Laurent, which itself was influenced by Yves from Estée Lauder and so on. I put things in place in my head. And once you have that, your head very organized, this perfumery, which seems so abstract to 99.9% of the population becomes something very precise and very concrete. And when, uh, when you said before, I, I 
latched onto this because these, of course, are are kind of terms that are used in art too. This idea of abstract perfumes, which are, I guess, the invention of a scent that doesn't exist in nature, and figurative, which are imitative, right? They take something in nature as a model, and and are the and those are the kind of two big divisions. It sounds like in the world of perfume. In my world of perfume, yes, because I try to use analogies and terms that the public understands. Because, right. you know, it's a bit like theater people that sort of have this language of their own. And it's like always a private conversation, like a private joke. And I hate that. I think that some people in the perfume industry are, are very, or connoisseurs, are very complacent and happy to sort of listen to themselves. Talking in all these terms that are so complicated that they that themselves generally don't understand. And so, you know, abstract and figurative, that's already quite concrete which is uh, which anybody can understand so you imitate nature or you do something abstract and now what the common thing is that all these perfumes have to mingle with the skin and Mm. in the end they have to become a person so to turn a flower into a person that's way more difficult in by my book because if you want to stay true to the flower it has to stop being vegetal at one point and it has to become a person. So you have, it's, you have to be really clever about turning that into a human being. It works when you do a candle, when you make a candle, because a candle is just a smell. But something that is a scent that you're going to memorize as a person is a perfume. And turning something figurative, namely a flower, into a person is... You, to do that, you have to create a certain alchemy which and, and pull a few strings, either by deforming the flower itself or by adding a few elements that people don't notice so that it becomes that person. And only very good perfumers can do that, and there are only a few that, uh, perfumes that, that are landmarks in that field. Now, if you do abstraction, you, can, you create a texture, and it's a texture that can resemble an element of life, like, I don't know, frankincense at church or right, a sure, piece of sure. wood or something like that. But it's still already a texture and it's somehow an abstraction in itself. And then these textures very often can be mixed with one another. And I often see perfume making like an abstract painting. Also because when I smell, I sort of see things. And so it becomes very much like a work of art where you where the artist has to find the right balance between elements it can be a very small element but very bright which will offset a huge surface of another element it's a all a matter of balance uh, you know cartier bresson when he used to choose his photographs not, not only there was this significant moment and the photograph had to say, tell a story but he would edit them by turning the contact sheet around just from their geometry mm. and and not to be influenced by the theme itself. And to tell you that good work of art generally is well balanced visually, or that's the 20th century way of, of seeing it. Mm-hmm. And it's the same for perfumes, except that you have to have this sort of inner feel for things to and and which is uh, uh, you have to have this sort of sense of balance to do it but when you're doing this this the creation of a, of a scent or overseeing it is there a moment in the testing where it becomes important 
to try it on lots of different skins or on lots of different people to understand how the scent will change from what it is out of the bottle, as it were, to what it becomes when it mingles with an individual? I probably don't do it enough. What we do, we all have a few people around us that we try things on, that we know their skin very well, and they're usually close to us. But you don't try uh, things on, on everybody's skin. What I used to do, and I still do occasionally, but I used to be obsessed with that, is I smell also things, perfumes, in different places. Something, sm- a perfume smells different in New York and in Paris. And because the, the cities smell them differently, the, um, the surrounding air smells differently. The heat is different, the, the mm-hmm. dampness and so on. So there's just so many factors. But usually I work on myself and I usually have four perfumes on me at all time, four variants of the same one. This is how we oh. sort of, you know, and then I write my comments of the evaporation of these, about the evaporation of each of these perfumes that I send to the perfumer that are usually the aesthetic, but are also technical comments. And then I take the best one and my wife or my daughters or my sons sort of wear it or people at the office that I know. And when people come into my office, I often ask them if they're interested in wearing something. And then there are some people that have better skin than others. So I don't know. You, you, you choose a person like you choose a model, like a painter would choose a model, and, and you sort of do it on them. But you don't try right. it on everybody. And the, I'm very curious about this process because you, you mentioned just now you're sending notes to a perfumer. So it's a process with many cycles, I would imagine, where you come up with a general direction with the perfumer. Does the perfumer present to you, here is an idea that I'm working on, a kind of olfactory idea. And then you come and you start to refine the idea or give feedback or direct it in some way. How, how does that uh, interaction work? So it's almost always the same interaction and the same thing, although it results in, in very different perfumes. I'm quite close, actually very close, to most of the perfumers that I work with. There are a few newcomers and, and a younger generation, so that's slightly different. But... Um, the Dominique Ropion and the Pierre Bourdons of that world are people that I've been working with for 30 years, Jean-Claude Delena and so on. And we have, so language, once again, is very important. And mm. we share that, that language, which is a perfumer's vocabulary. And we have similar references. Because one of the very difficult things in perfumery is to be able to communicate because it's such an abstract um, art that we really have to sort of uh, it's difficult to understand each other. And when we w- work with people that we have this type of working habits with and plus friendship, we manage to really understand each other. Uh, hardly having to, We hardly have to talk to one another. We really understand each other. We're on the same wavelength. So that the first step is usually an idea that comes either from the perfumer or from myself, regardless, it doesn't matter. And if it comes from myself, I always think of which perfumer would be the best or would like that mm. idea the best to, to work on. So um, 
I generally try to cater that to someone's specific style and ability. And I'm very curious about the what I would call the culture cycles for something like perfume. So if we think about the analog to visual art, you know, you'll have periods where people are very interested in figurative painting, at least in the contemporary scene, and then abstraction will come and then something else will come. What would the comparison be in the world of perfume? Like what, what are the cycles that um, people can move through that unbeknownst to us, we are participating in as certain scents become popular and then less popular and so on. Yeah. That's an interesting question. It's, first of all, one thing that I'm convinced about is that, and it's the Deleuze thing, is that it's a, a great work of art becomes timeless. And it's just, whether it's a, a painting or a perfume, when it's extraordinary, it's extraordinary forever. And now things, everything is has accelerated. So you have artists from all over the world, way more artists than we used to have. And I'm not going to teach you a business, but it's uh, sort no, of no, doing that's... different things at the, at the same time. And then all of that is this huge kaleidoscope. In my business, you have less schools. First of all, it's way smaller and it's still quite small. Although those perfumes often are smelled by millions of people. Or that's right. I mean, it's, 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 it's both smaller and, of course, much bigger. But you've got this tiny body of experts that basically do something that, until I hear it from you, I had no understanding of. But, of course, the effect globally is massive. And, what, and one of the things that really touched me, speaking about these people, when I started at Rouen, a man called Edouard Fléchier, who did you know, Rose and, and, and Lise Méditerranée with me, or for me, I had just done Poison, which was uh, a huge Christian Dior hit and millions of people around the world. They must have been selling, I don't know, 10 million bottles a year or something like that, maybe more. Jesus. And so, and this man was this very humble man smelling raw materials every morning at like a, a cellist doing, repeating his, uh, his partitions. His tune. And, and, but he was amazingly modest. And the contrast between this man alone in his white office smelling his thing and the millions of people wearing what he had imagined the year before was staggering. And the modesty was really impressive to me. Now, so that's, that. the proportion is quite extraordinary. And it hits you when you go, when you design a bottle and uh, you want to make sure that it's properly manufactured and you go to the glassmaker and you see, 35,000 bottles of what you have designed one afternoon on paper coming out of this machine in a day. And then all of a sudden, it gives you this sort of uh, idea of scale. But to go back to, to movements, yes, there are... It's, it's, it's a slightly different thing. People always ask me about trends, and I don't think that there are any trends, but marketing people trying to copy other marketing people success mm -hmm. and by copying something that works today they are already late because something else will work tomorrow but that's what creates those trends but it doesn't create many very good perfumes and then you have people that work sort of independently create very specific perfumes that stay in our lives for a very long time. Chanel number no. 5, for instance, is from 1921. It's almost 100 years old. Shalimar is 1924. 
um, and so on. So they can go on for a long time. Mus Caravageur in my company is 20 years old. It seems very, very contemporary. So I think great perfumes are so human that they last for a long time. Well, Frederick, thank you so much. This is unbelievably fascinating to hear the intricacies. I'm lucky to work in this industry. No, it's also a beautiful window into a world that really is out of the limelight. I think people just assume somehow these scents get made and then everyone sprays them on themselves. But to get a kind of glimpse into what that is actually like is really wonderful. Thanks for allowing me to talk about it, Lucas. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswarner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.